Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Nicole Narulius-Gupte. Nicole is an editor with Global Press Journal, a news organization working with women around the world covering undercovered countries. She's also the founder and executive editor of trailing-spouse.com, a website that shares stories of expats, military families, and significant others who have done adventurous things and reinvented their lives after partner-prompted relocations. She splits time between India and Seattle, the first thing that we ask every guest that we have on is a journalism origin story. What's yours? <laughs> this sounds so mysterious. I think a lot of us probably have similar origin stories in the field. We grew up really loving reading and writing from a young age. In my case, I had a lot of different interests growing up. So I was one of those kids who had a different answer every time they got asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And by Early high school, I think I, I got wise to the fact that if I was a journalist, I could write about all these different interests I have, and I wouldn't have to commit to any one of them particularly. And I'm also pretty nosy. I think my friends will all agree I like to be the first to know things and share information. So that's just part of my personality as well. How did it develop? I had a middle school newspaper that I was the editor of, and then I was the editor of my high school newspaper, and I had a great high school journalism teacher as well, Dr. Ziegel. I could type very fast. So at the height of my breaking news career, I got up to 136 words per minute, which always makes me send a mental message of thanks to my seventh grade keyboarding teacher, Ms. Finelli, if she's listening right now, thank you. I went to college where I was on the college newspaper at Cornell University and I met my husband there at the college paper. So that's also another nice uh, connection to my journalism career. And then after that, I went to Columbia Journalism School for my master's degree. Where did you grow up? New York. Gotcha. Uh, I've, I've, been, I've been told that my New York accent comes out very strongly when I'm emotional or when I'm around other people with thick accents, not necessarily New York accents. <laughs> You've worked in so many different places. You've had some highly interesting jobs, just to run through a few things. You've covered religion. You've worked for the New York Times, Reuters, the Bay Area News Group. You've taught at Columbia. You've worked in communications and now in global press. That's a lot to get through. Let's try and narrow it down. What were some of the turning points of your career? One would have been at Columbia Journalism School, I took the covering religion class, which is taught by Professor Ari Goldman. And it's one of the more difficult classes to get into because everybody wants to be able to go on the international reporting trip that that class does. And my year, we happened to go to Moscow and Kiev, which is, of course, highly relevant now. But this is, this is back in spring of 2002. I think I probably got a little edge of getting into that class because I, I'm Greek Orthodox uh, originally. And so I had that fluency, native fluency of Orthodox Christianity, which is really helpful when going on a religion reporting trip to Russia and Ukraine. So that helped me develop that specialty in religion reporting that became one of my beats later on, on the, in my professional journalism life and as a board member at Religion News Foundation later on also. So that would have been early on. And then... Probably another big turning point when my husband's job with Boeing moved us from New York to Seattle, the timing was really, really terrible for me. It was 2009, so it's during the Great Recession, and one of the daily newspapers in Seattle, the PI, had just folded. So there are all these 
very experienced, qualified local journalists looking for jobs. And I'm also visibly pregnant at this point. So it's three strikes, three strikes for me. But I was three strikes also being actually now that I think about it, religion reporting being my specialty because Seattle is not on the global or national radar really for religion news. And breaking news, having a newborn is also not ideal when you don't have family around to pinch hit as babysitters. So probably five strikes. But I did quickly notice that what media had been in New York City, that's what the nonprofit sector was to Seattle, especially with the Gates Foundation being such a major, major player. So I transitioned into nonprofit communications while we lived in Seattle. And one of the organizations I worked for was Days for Girls International, which is focused on menstrual health and education around the world, specifically reusable pads. So that really helped me with some of the current work I'm doing, which is working with women journalists on stories that often have something to do with gender equity issues. Yeah, let's get to your current position. How did you end up at uh, Global Press? It actually was through Days for Girls. Indirectly, one of my colleagues at Days for Girls used to, had done a fellowship or somehow had connected with one of the leaders at Global Press Journal. And when she saw they were hiring editors, she referred me. So you never know which of your jobs is going to end up being the stepping stone. It's kind of like a tapestry. Certainly a good life lesson. So we talked with Jessica Myers, the editor-in-chief of Global Press Journal, a couple of months ago. Among the countries you work with reporters in include Sri Lanka, which is one story that was published under your guidance recently. The headline of the story, Food and Medicine Shortages Endanger Pregnant Women. Now, any story that Global Press does, it's a team effort. You were the editor, part of a group of 10 people from around the world that worked on the story. Can you explain the story and how it was produced from idea to finished version that we would see online? Yeah, thanks for asking. So let me see. I've been working with Global Press Journal for a little over a year. And like you said, on the website, globalpressjournal.com, they do list everyone who's worked on each story, which I think is so great, not just for the team members to get that recognition, but also for our readers. I really like knowing that what you're reading has been through a thorough process of fact-checking and editing and photos. And it just really shows that it's not fake news. It's Mm -hmm. real, real, valid international and local news. So the stories that Global Press Journal runs are pitched and reported by local women. And these are women who know their communities and they have the insights and contacts that come from that experience and their networks. Sri Lanka obviously going through a really tough time right now and lots of news coming out and changing pretty rapidly. Global Press Journal stories aren't usually breaking news. They're more long human interest stories, process features. In this case, our reporter Vijay Tharshini Dinesh pitched a story idea about medical supply shortages, which is a broad topic. Our stories are usually around 900 words long, and it would have been a series really to go into every kind of medical supply shortage. So I worked with her a little bit to narrow it down to a more specific angle. And what she came up with was focusing specifically on the medicines and vitamins that you would need for healthy pregnancies, which was an angle we also hadn't seen covered yet. So it was very unique in that way. And it was something that her community and her sources were really worried about. Yeah, she pitched and reported and wrote her story in Tamil, which is her local language. And the way the process works with our reporters who are not working in English is that we have it translated professionally at the beginning and at the end of the process. And then in between, 
I used a mix of interpreters and Google Translate for any questions back and forth. And she worked with our photo editor on the images she took of her sources. And in this story, just before we published, actually, our researchers and graphics editor worked with us to come up with a graphic with a visualization of how the prices of the vitamins and medications had been rising. That was something that we thought about doing during the process, but we wanted to wait until right before the story ran because they were changing so much. We didn't want to lock in a graphic that was already outdated a month later. So it's a pretty robust process from pitch to publication, and we're very happy with the results. What's the experience of trying to work with some of the people that you work with, particularly in this case where you're dealing with a reporter for whom you're not speaking the same language, and as you said, you're trying to use Google Translate in some cases to talk to them? Yeah, you know, I'm very impressed with Google Translate and Deeple, which is something we use with the Spanish and French reporters more. They've they've been able to do a lot of of translation for us for basic questions. Sometimes we really need to use the interpreters and the professional translators, though, because slang doesn't always make it through and dialect differences. I've noticed that more with Mongolia, actually. <laughs> the Mongolia reporters, sometimes the, the Google Translate really botches some of their, their questions, but the Sri Lanka one worked pretty well with Google Translate in the meantime. In terms of the challenges Right now, specifically with Sri Lanka's political situation and economic situation, we had to deal with a little bit more than usual. So we had some power outages, fuel shortages are making it more challenging for journalists there to move around and to file their stories. I want to refer people to the episode that we did with Jessica Myers, the editor-in-chief of Global Press Journal. If you want to learn more about the global press and how it operates, that's one piece of what Nicole does. I want to talk about the other piece of of what you do. You have this website in this community, Trailing Spouse. And again, trailingspouse.com, trailing-spouse.com is a website that shares stories of expats, military families, significant others who have done adventurous things and reinvented their lives after partner-prompted relocations. It's not just a website, it's a community. I, I call it Maybe you would have a better term or a term that's appropriate. I call it kind of journalism adjacent. Mm -hmm. And I like the tagline of hanging on and flying high and the philosophy celebrating the grit and creativity of trailing spouses everywhere. We're here to cheer you on from trailing to trailblazing and learn from each other's journeys. Explain the origin story of the site. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you're a fan. I... I guess the way the site came about is that I really wanted it to exist and I wanted somebody else to make it. And I kept just putting it out there in the universe, you know, giving this idea to people whenever I would talk about this with other journalists or bloggers. And I just, like you said, when you described the site, when you, you probably took a look through the about page, it's an opportunity to really celebrate the grit and creativity and all the types of trailing spouses out there. But when you Google trailing spouse, a lot of those stories, they kind of fall into two categories, right? One of them is these woe is me, immigrant woman crying in the bathroom kind of stories. And then there's these other extreme, which is the really gorgeous Instagram filtered travelogues of privileged people with lots of free time. And those are both very valid. And I've found myself on both ends of that spectrum personally, and also with, with the people I know in my life. But what really seemed to be missing was this our current generation and the, the modern version of the, the trailing spouse, which is a more diverse community. It's more husbands as well as wives now. It's gonna be more alternative 
kinds of careers. It's going to be more opportunities to continue working from home, especially it's one of kind of the silver linings of COVID times. You do have more opportunities to work from anywhere in the world. And just people are a lot more mobile now than they used to be. Explain uh, your relocation journey. You already explained part <laughs> of it with New York to Seattle. What about uh, Seattle to uh, <laughs> Well, I, I say I'm a fourth generation trailing spouse, so I'll just briefly tell you. So my great grandmother on my father's side, she did the, the, you know, the whole Ellis Island boat from Greece, rural Greece to New York City. And then my grandmother on my mother's side was following her husband's career all around Cyprus, which is a small island, but in the days before decent roads and decent cars, you move to a different city and like then you have to write letters to each other. My mother married my father and she moved from Cyprus to the US. And then my mother-in-law also moved from India to America when she married my father-in-law. So I was just always steeped in these stories. And then lo and behold, it happened to me too. So I, uh, let's see, my husband and I, I said we had met in college and then we moved from New York to California for a few years originally because he was attending business school and I got a journalism job out there. And that was pretty much equal footing. But then the big change was in 2009, when we moved from New York to Seattle. Um, I think I touched on that a little bit, why that was so challenging. But people are always surprised when I point out that my move from Seattle to Delhi, India in 2019, so 10 years after that other move, was so much better, so much easier. And people always expect an international relocation is going to be harder. But in my case, definitely the domestic one was much harder. I, I know that one person that you cited historically when kind of introducing this to people on the website, you mentioned the about page, is both Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her husband, right? Mm -hmm. Can you just articulate their story for those that might not be familiar? Oh, with well, I feel such a kinship because they also met at Cornell and then she ended up getting her law degree from Columbia. So sometimes I feel like I really wish I could have her as a, whenever you ask, get asked dinner table guests, right? Ideal dinner table table guests. Yep. So her story, I think if anybody's seen the documentary or, or watched the movie about her or read any of the interviews, so she and her husband were both these very intelligent, amazing, aspiring lawyers. And then they both were at Harvard Law School. But then when he graduated ahead of her and his job took him to New York, Harvard at the time wouldn't allow her to continue in New York, but receiving a, a Harvard degree. So she ended up having to switched to Columbia. And so she was a trailing spouse at that time. And then ultimately later on, she moved to DC for her Supreme Court position and he followed her there. Yeah, well, no, the, what I really liked about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg story is that she, she did have a setback by moving to New York. I mean, in her mind, she would have loved to have graduated from Harvard. And she then in New York had, had challenges finding the work that she wanted to do. And she ended up pivoting to academia. But it ended up being that the resilience that she gained from these experiences ultimately helped her. And then her husband was also her biggest supporter later on. So I think that was an, a real ideal story, especially of that generation for me to look at when I was looking for examples of grit and creativity for the website. You mentioned the documentary and the movie. I certainly recommend both. So one of the, one of the things that's on the site is what's called the Gupte scale. Can mm -hmm. you explain what that is? The Gupte scale. So... This goes back to my point that everyone always thinks of destination with relocations as being the primary thing that will demonstrate whether, what that will determine whether you have a positive or negative experience. But I actually find that there's three categories that define how the relocation will feel. So there's the destination, but there's also the timing and the resources. So each of those 
and the Gupta scale, you rate from a scale of one to five. So your total is out of 15. And I ask all of the contributors to the website to rank their moves that way. And that gives us a more common scale of experiences across all these different types of moves. Cause we have some people who are moving temporarily and some people permanently and some people really internationally or domestically, there's such a range. So it's great to have that one way to, to make it numerical. And in my case, I'll just give you my example. So my move from New York to Seattle was a six out of 15, which is pretty low, below average, but my move from Seattle to Delhi was a 13. And that's, as you said, it was a, it was an easier transition. Oh yes, much yeah. easier. A different time in my life, a lot of support from my husband's company and from the expat community in Delhi was, it's just really used to having newcomers. So with all the embassies there, especially. So it was very welcoming. Seattle gotcha. was a little different, especially in 2009. They weren't so used to having people come in from other parts of the country. And there's a bit of a Seattle freeze, though it's gotten, it's thought out. So one of the things that I like about the articles that are on the site are the lessons kind of that come with it. There was a recent interview with a book author who moved when his wife's job took her to Luxembourg. And it ends with the story of one of his sons playing on a ski slope. The son didn't understand what this French kid that was with him was saying, so he'd just smile and say, we. And the writer said, what a great life approach for an expat. (laughs) Smile and say, we. Embracing the unknown is another popular theme. There was a piece about how you may go overseas and find an expat community, but it might be an uncomfortable fit, like Oregonians blending with New Yorkers and Michiganders (laughs) and having to deal with all these different things. Do you have other favorite lessons from stories on the site? Oh, they're all my babies. Let me think. <laughs> we do we do have a soft spot, I think, for any story where they had to overcome some kind of obstacle. So like when your career path has to pivot or totally change due to the work permit situation or the market or the timing or family planning. I just, I like reading the stories that are truthful about things not going so well initially, or maybe after a honeymoon period is over, but then with the grid and the creativity and the patience, things turn around after all, and then the resilience ends up being helpful. So we have um, we have examples of, like Chris Pavoni, you mentioned the book author. You know, it, his experience helped him, helped inspire him to write these great books. And we have other people who've gone into different fields that they wouldn't have explored if not for their move. So lots of good stories about that. That I, I think there's something for everybody on the site. Even if you're not a relocating spouse, I mean, even if you just know one or you like reading about different parts of the world. Yep, that's. I think that's where my interest in it kind of comes <laughs> comes into play. How how many people are are involved within it? How many people are in the community? Oh, you know, it comes and goes because we have people who were involved with me when I first started the site in India in 2019, and then with COVID, there was a mass evacuation that that went on. So behind the scenes, it's just kind of, it's me as the executive editor, and then I bring in different people who are available. But in terms of the readers and the community, we have a Facebook page, we have a LinkedIn presence, working on Twitter right now, but hasn't been nailed down yet. There's a Twitter squatter situation that I think Twitter really needs to address at some point, but I don't think Elon Musk is going to get around to it anytime soon. What, what more do you want to do with the site and the community? Well, let's see. The sky's kind of the limit. I mean, it's, it's such a broad topic, but at the same time, it's also a niche topic. So I had the goal this year that I would feature more husbands because the dominant narrative has been so female focused. So we've been doing more of that. 
I'd also like to feature more types of families. So same-sex couples, political families, we haven't done those yet. I think my, my biggest wish would be to get, this is my dream, my dream feature. If I could get Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg's husbands to share. What, what has come, up, come from it for the people involved? Like I, I presume a, a great sense of community is like the, the big thing. Oh yeah, you know, I think we all feel a little isolated and it's great to know that there's other people out there and there's people who've come out the other side of a relocation and they've, they've pivoted, they've, they've learned a new skill or they've, they've made, the, I always call it like making the most of your move. So whether it's you learned the local language or you became an expert on this period of history that's helpful for something else in your career later on, you never know. I mean, maybe you'll go on Jeopardy and you'll get a category on the, the Mughals, the early Mughals of India, and then you'll ace it. <laughs> We're going to get to Jeopardy in a second. <laughs> yeah. So is journalism adjacent the appropriate term for, for what it is? Well, I think everything's journalism adjacent. So I think it's more like an, it's like an online magazine. Yep. Probably that's the closest thing. Sure. So a couple of things related to career advice as someone who's worked in a lot of different positions. Is there a void in the industry that you would encourage young journalists to fill? Hmm. Local journalism, I think, is, is the most critical area right now. I don't know that we need so many journalists writing about national politics as we have compared to the, the lack of the local journalism that we are missing in this generation. It feels like we're we're not getting enough coverage of local school board and city council meetings that we used to. And I think it would improve the trust in media institutions if readers really saw their, their local journalists, their neighbors, their fellow parents at the school, you know, whatever happens to be attending these meetings and living and working among them. But I, I don't think it's a case of local, I don't think it's a case of journalists not wanting to do the, do the work. I think it's more just the way the business model has been shaking out. Is there something that you would suggest to someone who wanted to go into the type of editing and projects with, with something like Global Press? My career path was not so traditional. I think you just have to be open to, open to embracing new opportunities and experiences. So I left journalism for a while there, right? But it's like that Godfather 3. I thought I was out and they pull me back in. <laughs> so you're never really gone. I call it sometimes recovering journalists. So if you can find some way as a journalist to always be writing or reporting or editing, whether that's as a volunteer, as a tutor, maybe, you know, I was doing, I was helping some first-generation college applicants in Seattle for a while in the nonprofit world with college essays. Um, just every kind of writing or, or editing, or, you know, if you're not print, then I guess it would be more photography, photo editing you could be doing podcast projects. There's a lot of opportunities to do your own thing. And I think you should explore that as much as you can. And what about if someone has an idea for a niche similar to the online magazine Trailing Spouse? What advice do you have regarding trying to develop it and making it work? <laughs> similar to Journalism Salute? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, obviously, I think everybody should pursue their passions. But I, I do say first, make sure no one else is already doing something similar because we really don't need to reinvent wheels necessarily and split audiences and all that. So first see what, what else is out there. Maybe try to approach whoever is doing something similar about a partnership or working with them in some way. I did try that with Trailing Spouse actually. Like I said, I just kept like wanting somebody else to do it, but there really wasn't anyone else focused on sharing the stories that were both domestic and international. There's a lot of like just international or just domestic. And then a lot of them were also trying to 
sell some kind of a service like travel agency or career coaching. And I just really wanted to share the stories. So that's why I ended up doing it. But if somebody else had been doing it, I would have been happy to just approach them about being a partner or an editor in some way. So one non-journalism thing that we do need to know, we can get some advice on. You and I connected because we both follow the account One Eclectic Mom (laughs) on Twitter, a woman named Lily, whose Twitter is niche, kind of like a niche passion project. She tweets about the TV show Jeopardy, just mentioned, and Jeopardy (laughs) and fashion. Now, you were on Jeopardy. This is how we connected. How did you do? And do you have any tips for journalists that want to be on it? How did I do? Well, I was a silver medalist, we say. I was a one and done. That was uh, Christmas Eve of 2018 was when my episode aired. You can probably find it on YouTube. And I was beaten by the buzzer. I got to say, I was so sad because I got this dream board on Jeopardy. I knew everything on that board. They even had, it was like, I mean, it was Christmas Eve that was going to air. So I'm going to go like a little religion-y on it. And I was going to say, it's like the baby Jesus wanted me to win this game. There was a category for nonprofits. There was a category of the museum in Philadelphia that my family had visited that same year. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable when I saw this board. And then I just could not get that buzzer to be my friend. So I think the, the joke in my house, I have, a, I have a tween son, is that maybe mom should have spent less time studying the world capitals and more time playing Nintendo. And I would have done better on my game. But I did get to meet Alex Trebek, which was nice because he did get sick after that. So the tip for journalists would be practice your your video game playing yeah play more nintendo you know the the reflexes you need for that buzzer are pretty strong and i don't have them i'm very good at typing so if i had been able to type in the answer i think i would have been great but the that little thumb motion you need to do i tried practicing by clicking on a pen but it's not quite the same so (laughs) oh well so you did mention typing a couple of times you type uh, you type 120 words a minute did you say well, now it's probably 120. At the peak of my powers, it was over 130. So that was really useful for breaking news. It's probably why breaking news became one of my specialties, just because I could meet the deadlines really, really fast. <laughs> that, that's, that's something. If you can type 120 words a minute, journalism is definitely a good field for mm. you. So last question. Is there a journalist or journalism organization, now one that you're not affiliated with, that you would like to salute for their good work? Oh, I love this idea. I love this question. So I think I've, I've hinted, if not said outright, that I, I really strongly believe in the nonprofit model of journalism. And you can look at the website for the Institute for Nonprofit News. So there's a lot of great examples there. I'm working for one now with Global Press Journal, but there's a lot of others. There's ProPublica and NPR that are probably the best known. Religion News Service, uh, if you're interested in stories about faith and culture, is a great one. And... I always urge everyone to subscribe to at least one local newspaper online, if not in print, although I'm, I'm a dead tree girl, so I like my print. I think you should make sure you're supporting the journalism that keeps you informed about the issues in your own community and holding those local policymakers and school boards accountable. And if you want to find nonprofit organizations, the INN website has them by the hundreds. They have just about every journalism organization there is. That is how I have found a good number of guests. <laughs> Nicole Nerulius Gupta. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck uh, with both of your projects. Thank you. I salute you. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon. 
And I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.